Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Books Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have our joke now. All right. Uh, welcome. My name's Chris. I am your alcoholic joke teller. We're going to continue our journey through the book, A Rabbit Walks Into a Bar, the AA Grapevine Approved Joke Book. Here we go. A group of winos were sitting on the steps of a building when another lush came along. What are you going to do today, Jack? One of them asked. Nothing. Not a damn thing. I ain't even going to do what that until this afternoon. <laughs> Always with the wonderful jokes. Okay, hello, my name is Violet. Um, I'm a recovered alcoholic. Hi. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise or might or will distract others. Uh, take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? All right, let's start the meditation.
Okay, join me in reciting the fog light prayer. If you don't know what it is, it's right up here. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those whom are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. Bless you. There is a solution from Big Book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is a great news that this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. Now I've asked Rachel to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Hi, my name is Rachel, and I'm an alcoholic. And this is the spiritual experience. The term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing member, uh, membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspecting inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think that this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need to have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and an open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer, Alcoholics Anonymous, page 567 to 568. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, 
So set your phones on airplane or meeting mode or just turn it off. Um, I'd like to thank Peter M. for sharing his birthday with us and his message. So happy birthday, and we're excited to hear you continue your step uh, series. Um, is this on? We're good? My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic, and uh, grateful to be alive and sober, and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, again, thank the group for having me back here. Um, it's my favorite place to be um, on a Thursday night, and if you have no way to go on Tuesday, there's a really cool workshop happening at the 12-step house on Tuesday nights at 8.30. Um, woman up there is just uh, knocking out of the park, so uh, it's a good place to be. Um, glad to be here, and um, i got to share with you before we get going, uh, well, June 23rd, 1988 is when God separated me from alcohol, and I do have a sponsor. He's out of St. Paul, Minnesota. His name is Bob Azan. I'm very grateful for the lessons he's been giving me. Uh, a little bit different, uh, more like another gentleman who helped me, Don P. out of Colorado, where it was more of a conversation. Uh, about this work, about Alcoholics Anonymous, about life, and I, I'm relishing my time with him. Um, but uh, it was interesting today. I, God wakes me up early. Um, I was up really early this morning. Uh, it wasn't even 4 a.m. And um, I, I do my prayer meditation and I do some reading. And um, I was just in this place of um, having a cup of coffee, and I just kind of sat back in this chair in my little office at home, and uh, what came back to me was um, a birthday that I had uh, while I was in treatment. Uh, I was 28 years old when, when God sobered me up uh, in 1988, and uh, a few weeks later, I'm sitting in a treatment center in St. Paul, and I went from Long Island, New York to St. Paul, and I remember sitting first in New York with this gentleman, Vince Dowling, who was sober 30 years at the time, and was considered a saint in my family. He's really one of the big reasons why I'm alive and sober. And uh, when I sat with him, uh, he asked me a question. I looked at him straight in the eye, and he says, I have 14 days today. And there was a little bit of a swagger in me. But I look, you know, we live life forward and understand it backwards. And when I did that, I wanted to take back the words, because how dare I throw that 14 days around when my life is basically in the toilet? And I'm sitting in his office wearing my brother's clothes. And there was still that ego of, I got 14 days, what are you going to tell me? And, I, and that was the spirit already working for me. But I was thinking today about sitting in a treatment center. I had a little happy birthday for me. And the feeling, uh, this morning I could almost feel it. What I was experiencing, uh, and I don't remember all of it, but I do remember, you know, when you're new and you're still vibrating, and I wanted to get sober in the worst world, and I had no clue how. And I wanted to learn what some of these folks were talking about when they would bring meetings into the treatment center, or they'd take us out to an AA meeting. And I wanted to uh, uh, get what they had, but I didn't know how to start. And I was so clueless. 
not only about recovery, just about life. I mean, I had ripped it up and tore it down, and it was just a mess. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in treatment, and um, I'm wearing clothes that don't fit me because my brother sent me some threads to wear. And, um, you know, I'm not okay. My skin is still kind of pot-marked, and it's oily, and your complexion is just not good, and I'm way underweight. And I can't hold any food yet. Anything I eat would just not stay there. A glass of water wouldn't work. And uh, I remember uh, we used to get the, uh, someone had the Daily News delivered. One of the guys from New York had the Daily News delivered to the treatment center. And he would give it to me. And I'm from New York. That's what I grew up on. And I would read the headlines. Usually the news has big headlines. I see the headlines, turn the page, and I have to go back because I forgot what I just saw. That was my retention rate. And I think about it now, how, how much trouble I was in, all at the hands of alcoholism. And I had a family uh, who loved me, but was now loving me from a distance. Uh, they were angry with me, and they had some Al-Anon muscles that they knew they couldn't do it for me. And for me, it was sink or swim, and I knew that. And I was just so terribly afraid. The thing I was doing was not hanging around with the war story guys. You know, when you're in treatment, you got the war story folks or the womanizer guys, and they're planning that next drunk or the next woman they're going to date. And we didn't have cell phones back then. It's one of the biggest detriments to getting sober in the early days on the phones because they're not looking for, you know, Sports Center or Fox News. They're looking at these weird websites. And uh, one call and they're out the door. Um, so I didn't have that distraction. But what I had was a ton of distractions in my head. And so where I am now, I'm very, very grateful uh, for all the lessons I got. And, and a lot of the lessons I, I received were, were, were stretching and pulling and challenging. And some of the men who gave me these directions, I thought their heads had to be examined because what does this have to do with recovery, like keeping my room clean? What does this have to do with recovery, like looking proper and getting dressed for a meeting? What does that have to do with recovery? What does getting a job have to do with recovery? It all has to do with recovery. I always use the analogy, if you get a jigsaw puzzle, and there's maybe 300 pieces in there, and you've got these little tiny pieces that are really insignificant when you're starting, but when you complete the puzzle and there's one piece missing, there's a hole in the puzzle. It just looks incomplete. At the beginning, it didn't look important, but it's terribly important now. And I, I, I'm very grateful I still have that walk, and it's not perfect, but my walk is, everything is important. <clears throat> the phone call that I don't want to take is important. And the meeting I don't feel like going to because I'm too tired is important. And that extra inventory I'm way too tired to write or that prayer time or whatever it might be, or I don't feel like calling my sponsor because I'm busy today, that's, that's the things I need to do. And so I chop wood and carry water, and it has given me a life beyond what I planned when I turned 29 years old sitting in a treatment center. I, I was sharing last night, I got called into, I went on a Zoom meeting last night, I was staying, usually Wednesday we're home, and Marion was out taking care of some things, I went on the Zoom meeting, speaking and showed, he asked me to speak, and I was telling these folks that I can't believe I'm around this long, not only age-wise, but sobriety-wise, because at 29 or going into treatment at 28, um, if I made 30, I was going to be you know, victorious. It was that bad for me. Uh, there were a lot of things going on internally with me, uh, all as a direct result of long-term alcohol and some other substance abuse that I had to deal with, and I was petrified. It's really interesting, when I'm running and gunning out there, I don't really care about anything other than getting that feeling 
and I'll take risks and go to any lens. And then you sober up and suddenly my life and my body is really important to me. How could I have been so stupid? And suddenly my family who I really didn't, they were really in the way. Suddenly I need to get around my family and just prove to me over and over and over again the treachery of this thinking mind. How it allows me to dance with Satan. I don't even know I'm doing it. And then for some reason I get plucked out of that hellhole and I land in Alcoholics Anonymous by way of maybe a treatment center and suddenly all the things that I just took for granted or neglected are incredibly important to me. And so the older I get, and I, it, it, things are very important to me, relationships. My health, my Alcoholics Anonymous, and conscious contact with God. It's really unbelievable. I would do go to any lengths to feel better and put anything in my body to feel better. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous and I get reservations on things I have to do to get better. Because I'm still looking to feel better. That meeting doesn't make me feel good. Why? Because they're talking about God in the steps. I'm not going there. I need a sponsor who makes me feel better, constantly strokes me all day long, and this other guy's calling me out on my stuff. I don't want to go to him. That's the sponsor I need. That's been my journey. Because if I'm not willing to get out of the lane with traffic and get into the express lane with no traffic, if I always do what I always did, I'm always going to get what I always got. There's going to be no change. Am I in a place of willing to be, continue to be ruined rather than change and continue to live the story bent on self-will run riot or begin to live the life God is offering me? And the mind doesn't want any part of the change. My mind doesn't want any part of freedom. My mind, my, mind wants, my mind wants no part of God. It wants to keep me in that thing, in that life. And I could be in a place of alcoholic synonymous, making meetings, double-digit sobriety, still in the place of resistance rather than acceptance. Compliance rather than surrender. Disease and discomfort rather than peace, ease, and comfort an undercurrent of just turmoil all the time, a lot of dialogue all the time, and none of it's good. Now, we're going to get dialogue. I mean, we're human. It's going to happen. But it's a constant under, undercurrent of bad dialogue rather than just traveling light. And whatever I have is never enough. And yet sometimes I can awaken and realize I would like more, but what I have is enough, and suddenly I'm traveling lighter. And when I was new, I thought I, you know, I, sh- I share this many times that the old timers, bless their hearts, would say, hey, you're looking good, kid. You, s- you sound good, kid. That's, that's gold when you're new. But what my ego does is lock into that. Now I have to look at it and sound good all the time to be part of this club. And suddenly I find myself trying to arrange life to suit me and get all the external conditions right. Look good, sound good, get the girlfriend, get the car, get this, get that, money in my pocket, make sure I'm working, shoes are signed, clean, sneakers are clean. So I fix the external world thinking that's going to remedy this internal condition. And I start to set out on fixing all the results of my alcoholism rather than the causes and conditions of my alcoholism. We'll get to a place of fixing the result, what I did because of alcoholism. I first have to get down in here. And I had it all backwards. And I remember going to, uh, uh, I actually went online to look at the old sober house I was in and the treatment center I was in. The treatment center I thought was the size of Yankee Stadium. It's smaller than this room. 
and the halfway and three-quarter and sober house I went to, some of you old folks might remember the Munsters, that comedy show. Remember the house, 1313 Mockingbird Lane? That was my sober house. It kind of looked like that. And I thought it was like Shangri-La. I thought it was in Utopia. It was the coolest thing because there were about 50 or 60 guys in there. And you kind of pal around and you pool your money together and order like Domino's pizza or something. Or you pool your money together and go up the road and go to Perkins, get one pot of coffee and a piece of apple pie and share between like 50 guys or something. And there was noise and activity and there was, there was friendship and fellowship. And coming from an abandoned building like I did, this was, this was incredible. There's people around me. We talk. We have the same fears, the same angst going on, the same uncertainty, same, all of it. We all got it going on. And then life starts to show up quickly about all the stuff I had done, again, all the damage I had done, and coupled with that was all the people I hated and despised and I was resentful for. Most of those people, I'm happy to tell you, I love today. You know, we go from putting people on our resentment list, then they go on a men's list, and then they go on our Christmas list. It's unbelievable how this happens. (laughs) My job today is not just talk about recovery or this book, but to be about recovery, live recovery, and as my sponsor would say, be the book be a living example of this book. I remember Don P. sat me down one time and he said to me, uh, Don P. is a guy, Don Pritz from Denver, Colorado, Aurora, Colorado, actually. And he said to me, he says, kid, would you be able to take someone through the book without having a big book in front of you? I mean, to take them through the steps without having a book in front of you. And I said, absolutely not. That's impossible. And he said to me, keep coming back. And what he meant by that was, am I needing the book to, or do I memorize the book, or is it in here, so internalized, that I can sit down with someone and march them through the book, sharing my experience and hope, because it isn't all stored in here, but has awakened in here. These are incredible lessons I got from people who are on this path. And so I get to Alcoholics Anonymous, I get a sponsor, we talked about, and I begin this journey through the steps. And last week, we touched on, <coughs> pardon me, step three. And I shared about the first time I did the third step, and I can tell you the most recent time I did a third step, it's completely different. The key thing was the first time I did a third step and where I did the recent, most recent third step, in both cases I was very willing to be changed. But the first time, I had no idea what I was in for. The first time I did a third step with my first sponsor, I was looking at the third step, just take this drink out of my head, this drink thoughts. Just take this pain away from me. That's all I can get. And that was good enough because willingness here is so the key. They're not asking us to move a mountain. They're not asking us to recite the book or to have a PhD in recovery. They're just asking, are you willing to be changed? That's all they're asking. And God will determine the extent of that change. And I was certainly willing to do that. And what brought me to that place was step one pain. And the pain before I got, uh, Joe H. used to call it step zero, out there. And then I learned about what step one, I'll do anything to get the fire off of me. I can't take it anymore. I'm sober and I can't take it anymore. And then you get around here a while and you start to get stuff, like a job and a relationship and maybe some savings, and you're taking care of yourself, and maybe you get a car, and you have some clothes, and my third step is, am I willing to let go of all of that to experience God? 
Am I willing? Doesn't say I have to. Am I willing to let go of all of that? See, I'd rather bear the pain of waiting for God than bear the pain of going on without God. Am I willing to let go of everything I believe is mine, which is a problem when I believe it's mine? Because if it's mine, I'm traveling really heavy because I got to make sure you don't get any. Or if you get some, it's because I'm willing to give you. So suddenly I have this big possession of my life and I'm in control of it and there's no room for God. So as the years went on, and I kept going through the steps every year, twice a year. That third step, it was never, well, I'll just do a third step, get it out of the way and start this fourth step and just do it because I'm told to do it or do it because I'm going to be Moses at the end. It's not like that. Am I, it says we thought well before taking this step, after the third step. I know that, so going in, and I ask myself this question, and I sit with it. Am I really willing to let go of everything into God's care? What if he wants to strike me broke? What if he wants to strike me sick? What if he wants to move from the most important person? What if he wants to do that? Now, he probably won't, but what if he wants to? Am I willing to sign up for that? What if God says, I don't need you in South Florida anymore. I need you to move to Montana. I need some light out there, and I'm going to use you as a beacon. You're willing to do it? It doesn't say I have to go. Am I willing? What lengths am I willing to go to stay in God's light? It has to be any lengths, because where he sends me and what he allows me to say is really none of my business. And as soon as it's my business, then I'm God. And right before step three, it tells me I had to quit playing God. And I start to examine how many areas of my life I'm playing God. I'm playing God all day long, and I don't even know it. You probably see it a lot better than I do. And then I write inventory, and say, oh, my God, I'm playing God. The sneakiness and the subtleness of this thing called alcoholism. And that's why I'm never right. I'm never okay. And I'm not talking about when we have a difficult day. Mary and I just had one of the most challenging weeks in years. That's not what I'm talking about. It's just, I can't fit in. I'm just not right. I got an undercurrent of anxiety, disease, discomfort, fear, resentment. I got it all. And it continues because I'm trying to run the show rather than accepting what is and just going with the flow. If God's for me, who can be against me? Something came to me in meditation. I want to be careful with our traditions, but it, was, it just slammed me. And I've been working with it all week through this change in my career. It's a good change, but it's a change. And it went, uh, seek thee the kingdom of God first and all his righteousness, and all will be added unto you. I go to sit in meditation, bang, out of no, before I even got into Pasha, there it was. And I pay attention to that because it's 3.15 in the morning, and God talks to me early in the morning. The morning breeze has secrets to tell us. I need to pay attention to that very, very quiet solitude. And I said, now why, why did I get this? So when I was done with my meditation, I went to examine most of the words in that passage. And they were so apropos. Am I going to look to fix the external world? Am I looking to get the external world? Am I looking to make that right? Or am I going to follow what God has for me? Because if I do, I will find things just coming to me, things I need, not everything I want. And more importantly, I'm going to walk free. Our book talks about in the third step that we're going to be free at last. A lot of things I used to get me free threw me into more bondage. And when I finally let go and said, God, it's yours, I'm going to be made incredibly uncomfortable, turned inside out to the point where it hurts. And when I land, oh, my God, I'm so free. And the ego says, I told you. (laughs) So I do this third step. And uh, 
After the third step, our book says next we launch out in a course of vigorous action, which means when I'm done with the third step, I do a fourth step in order for me to continue this agreement that I've made, this contract, if you will, this verbal contract I've signed. I need to take that into four through nine. And it's really interesting how our book says the wording was, of course, quite optional. So perhaps I never saw a third step before. But I'm sitting with Nancy. I go, Nancy, I need anything. I'll do anything to stay sober. And she says something. You want to give your life to God? I say, yes. Well, this, let's pray. And we say some prayer. But the intent that I'm approaching that prayer with is God fix my life. But we have a beautiful third step prayer. It says, I got to offer myself to thee. Before I get going, my sponsor had me write out the third step prayer as it appears in this book. And he says, underneath that, write out what you think this prayer is talking to you about. So when we do it, it's a little bit more personal. What does God I offer myself to thee mean? To build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. God, you take me like the wretched sinner I am. You do whatever you want with me. I'm not getting involved in the new product. We take our car to the manufacturer because they're having a problem with it. We drop it off. And they automatically assume that the mechanic knows exactly how to fix that sound that shouldn't be there. I just release it to him. I don't go in and say, I think you're touching the wrong screws. I mean, I'm the type of guy, if I lift up the hood of the car, I just look at it. And I'm waiting for something to say, over here. Because I have no, I just about know how to turn the car or push the button. After that, I'm useless behind the car. So I turn my car over to this mechanic and they fix it. And I drive away and I'm happy. What I'm doing here is turning this mess that I've created. And God just fix it. I bring it back to the manufacturer. Shouldn't God know how I work better than I do and what I need? It says, relieve me of the bondage of self. It's really interesting. There's two things going on here. We got this self character over here. He's actually living in here. And we got the spirit. And what I'm used to is living with the self, the many manifestations of self. They own me. It's all up in the head, this warehouse of selves. And I got to get relief from the bondage of that self. As if this entity is floating around and I follow it wherever it goes. And I need somebody to cut the cord. Because all it's doing is keeping in bondage and more challenges and, and talks about difficulties. What are they? I'm sitting in the meeting. I have enough money. My health is good. I have a brand new car. I have a wonderful relationship. I live in a nice home. And my mind says, that's not good enough. You should have done this a long time ago. You need more money. You should have, he's got two cars, you should have two. He's got a Corvette, you don't. He's got a Mercedes, and it just goes on and on, and the self gobbles me up and takes me on another roller coaster ride, relieving me of the bondage of this self. The self doesn't want God, by the way. And if I could understand that I, the soul, is not a self, suddenly I create distance. I think I have thoughts, in reality, the thoughts have me. And soon as I label, these are my resentments, how could I let them go promptly without regret if it's mine? You know, if I walked into a restaurant and there was a cell phone on the table, I'd call the waiter and say, somebody left a cell phone here, and I'd just give it to him. It's not mine. Unless I got three days back, I'm going to try to sell it. I'm not, you know. <laughs> but it's not my phone. 
and he'll say, okay, thank you, and I'll see if I can call the owner, and so on. But if my phone was on the table and someone walked by and scooped it up and walked away with it, I would say, hey, that's my phone. I'm not going to let it go promptly and without regret because it's my phone. With me? So if I think these are my resentments, my thoughts, they belong to me, I'm not letting them go. Because if I do, I cease to exist. It's the only game I know. Just replaying resentments, living in fear. Living in fear, replaying resentments all day long. And I use that for attention, by the way. How you doing, Joe? Oh, man, you you know those cats. Oh, a bad day today. Yeah, no idea. It's like a Ronnie Dangerfield stand-up routine. I get no respect. Let me tell you how bad it is. All day long. How long are you sober now? 74 years, but it's not getting better. (laughs) A lot of caffeine in here. I got the, we have these resentments. But as soon as I claim ownership of them, it's really hard to let them go. I have them. Alcoholism attracts these things. It creates these things, all coming from this predator called the mind. Isn't the soul greater than resentments? Isn't the soul outgrow fear? Isn't God greater than that? And our book promises that. That if I write this stuff out, discuss it with someone, what it's ancient, it's a confession. That somehow it says, well, outgrow fear. I'll be free of these resentments. Because they never really own me. It felt like they own me, but they really don't. They just occupy a lot of space. And it's interesting, the more I replay them, the worse they get. You know, if I was coming in the meeting and, and Mike, Mike Chase was walking out, accidentally brushed up against my shoulder and didn't say, excuse me, or hey, Pete, how are you? I walk outside, I go, what was that about? <laughs> and that's at 6 o'clock. And by 6.30, I see Brian and says, hey, you know what Michael did? He bumped into me and he didn't say hello. And then 9 o'clock, I see Steve and I see, you know what Michael did? He threw me against the wall and cursed me out. <laughs> That's what resentments do. And Michael was just in a hurry to get someplace, and I'll see you later. Resentments, I keep replaying it, and every time I replay it, it seems to get worse and worse and worse. So I do this third step. And for me, we always did it on our knees. We get up, and we sit down. We open up the book, and I write this master list. And uh, the first part of this is this house cleaning, which is resentments. And... Um, I have no idea what's about to happen. As recent as my last fourth step, I I ran inventory by my sponsor, and I had Mike sit and did like a multiple fifth step. I had no idea what was going to come out of that, and incredible stuff came out of it. And what's really interesting, some some, uh, information and challenges my sponsor gave me, Michael gave me the same information in different language and the same challenges, which means if two people are telling me, i got to pay attention to this. I didn't see it going in. I'm writing all these resentments, and I'm writing all these fears and then suddenly truth shows up and what I've learned over and over and over again with fourth step is that I can write a whole bunch of information a whole book full of resentments and a whole book full of fears and a whole book of sex inventory in my case one page and um, just a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> you got that Put on pump. <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff 
And sometimes there's one piece, one piece of information that unlocks the gates of hell. I just don't know which one, and every piece was necessary. So quick story. A um, bunch of years ago, I was working with my old sponsor, uh, this gentleman Mickey from, uh, from Colorado. And um, I'm writing inventory, my fourth step, and I get to institutions. And I write down a Catholic, I write down Catholic Church. Cause, 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 effects. Where am I at fault? And I sit in the fifth step, I get to institutions, and I read some other ones, and I get to Catholic Church, and I, it went something like this. Uh, resentment Catholic Church, cause, all these causes, effects, where am I at fault? And I just blew right through it. Very matter-of-fact about it. And he said, back up, which is a sponsor's way of saying, you're in trouble. He says, back up. How long have you been nursing that one for? Nursing that grudge. And I push right back. He says, well, Mick, I says, think about it. You see what's going on. And I had the Rolodex of reasons why it was okay for me to have a resentment. No resentments are acceptable. All are unacceptable. And suddenly, as he told me, oh, so you're not an alcoholic today. Is that it? <laughs> of course I'm an alcoholic. So get, what gives you the right to hold? How long has this been going on? And so I kept pushing back on every time he challenged me. And then, like a good sponsor, who's awake who's in the sunlight of the Spirit, where God speaks to them to get to me, and vice versa sometimes, yeah, when we're working with others. He says this, he gives me some challenges, and it went like this. Do you go to AA meetings? I said, of course. He says, is every AA meeting a good meeting? I said, no. Are there 13 steppers there? I said, yes. Have you ever known people to pick up a coin or a chip who you knew were loaded? I says, yeah, I've seen it, totally loaded. He's, but you keep going back. I says, yes. And you keep practicing love, challenge, forgiveness, and acceptance of bringing a solution. I says, yes. And then he said, how come you can't do that with your church? And the phone went silent. See, the truth will always find me. The truth will always find me. I'm about to get free when it does, but it doesn't feel good when it finds me. The same way sinfulness will always catch me. I'll get away with it, get away with it, and then I get caught. The truth will always find me. And once it gets me, if I'm willing to change, then it'll set me free. But at, the, at that point, I felt caught. I had no pushback. <clears throat> that was the piece of inventory of all this work that I shared with him that needed to be read, discussed, and challenged. Because by the time I got to step nine, and I went back and sat in something called a confession and made amends for that, and followed through with the amends, my whole life changed. I wasn't a member of my church community. I am now. I didn't think it was that important. It's just as important as I am here. This comes first. I do that along with. But that's vital to me. There's two places in this world, well, three places in this world I feel absolutely safe. In an AA meeting, because I'm better with you. I just am better. When I sit in church on a Sunday morning, I'm better there. I feel safe there. Or when I'm with Marion. Those are the three spots in my entire life where I feel totally safe and protected. And yet I was missing one. And I didn't know how blind I was to it. And some folks have come up to, well, church, and I, that's what I did. So before you give me your contemporary investigation, write the inventory, get free, and then try it. It blew the doors open on my whole life. And so what I had to do was pray. And we have something called a set-aside, a lay-aside prayer, and I was told to do that. And I picked up the pen and began to write a master list of names. It says we went back through our lives, nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. They don't care what you write the inventory on. Write it on a cardboard box. I mean, they don't care. 
They don't care if my penmanship is good, I'm not a good speller, they really don't care. They just put it on paper. I remember my old sponsor, Mark H., was in New York for Fellowship of the Spirit Conference, and uh, we were all over my friend Tommy's house. There was about 30 guys there, and uh, we get a call from someone who was a slipper, in and out, in and out, and Mark said, come on over. And the guy says, I, I, I don't know what to do anymore. He says, you lack power. He said, well, what do I do? So Mark sits him at the kitchen table, and we're all listening, we're all eavesdropping, and Mark's walk, walking him through one and two within an hour. Just to get clear with this guy. He said, you want to do a third step? And we all circle in the living room, in the kitchen. We all made this weird-looking circle. We all did a third step together with this guy. And then Mark says, I'm going to help you do a fourth step. What you lack is power. You need some power. The resentments are killing you. So Mark says to me, sit next to me. I want you to watch what happens. So I sat with him. He's my sponsor. And Mark asked him, how many people are you angry with? these? I don't know. He said, give me some names. The guy comes up with seven names. Now, I know for some of you big book dumpers, throw them out of AA. Mark says, good enough, let's start with that. When he said seven names, I was like, Mark's going to throw them out. Seven, you can't do an inventory of seven names. We need a couple of hundred, (laughs) which is a little overkill. When I start seeing those numbers, it's really all about me again. I love writing about me. Mark says, good enough, let's start with that. Seven names. He says, why? Mark's writing it down. They went in the back room, they shared it. Did six and seven, the guy went out and made amends the next day. He had to turn himself in, did some time, stayed sober, and got out sober. Seven names. I think sometimes, like I was told last week, this can be an ego-driven assignment with the steps. Look at me. I know the book better than you. I got 2,000 names on my foot. God's going, dude, just get free. I'm right here. It's not such a big leap. But I need to be as thorough as he wants me to. So what I did was I prayed. And I, I, my sponsor gave me a little prayer right across the top of the page. And it went like this. Thank you, God, for allowing me to be searching, fearless, and moral. Because any alcoholic asked to do this task is going to fail miserably. I'm going to cut corners. I'm not going to be so thorough. And I'm not writing about sex inventory. I have no sex problems, so let's not discuss this. And I'm a man. How much fear do you think I really have? I mean, look at me. I'm afraid of my own shadow. I'm afraid of I'm afraid of living, I'm afraid of dying, I'm afraid of failing, I'm afraid of succeeding, I'm afraid of money, I'm afraid of not having money. I'm afraid of being intimate and I'm afraid of not being intimate. Oh my God. And this is going on all day long. And when you ask me, how are you doing? I'm fine, everything's great. (laughs) So I wrote a master list, and it was names. And this was just to get me centered as to who I'm being writing about. It was mom, dad, brother, aunt, uncle, that kind of thing. My last inventory, I had a handful of people, people I'm, I'm currently in kind of like a relationship. I don't see them too much anymore. Um, but there was that sting from some of the things they said or did that bothered me, some betrayal. It all came down to my false expectations. So I put these names down, and I wrote institutions and principles. And I took a name and I put the cause column, which is why I'm angry with that person. And it wasn't about me writing an autobiography. It was like, just get down to the reason. Joe, uh, why am I, he, he robbed me. Mary, she left me. I have to get into the whole relationship, causes and conditions. Our book says, Mr. Brown, his attention to my wife, period. Brown was trying to pick up Bill's wife. I mean, so that's what he puts down. Not like I met 
Brown about 20 years ago. He's a really good guy. I don't know what happened. He must be getting high because he's trying to pick up my wife. I took him to treatment. They don't get into that, causes and conditions. And I write out my third column, which is the seven areas of self, which is pride, personal relationship, self-esteem, security, ambition, pocketbook, and sex relations. And they don't care about what we do behind closed doors with two consenting adults. It says we're not the arbiter of anyone's sex conduct. They want to know where was it selfish. Aroused jealousy or suspicion and bitterness. Was it all about me using someone? I have no right to demand emotional security from you to make me okay. I have no right to demand you make me comfortable at your expense. I have no right to convince you it's okay to be with me in an intimate way when it really isn't. I have no right to take advantage of your vulnerabilities. I have no right to do that. But in alcoholism, that doesn't enter the picture. That's what I do. Men and women, we do that. Use sex to get what I want, manipulation, power, control. It's not only instant gratification. I'm so afraid of being alone, I'll keep this around me with all the toxic stuff that it brings to my life and me to her life, but I'd rather that than to be alone. God forbid I should be alone. An inventory can get me free of that to what God has planned for me. Am I willing to live along God's lines or not? And I get to the fourth column, and this is for me where rubber really hits the road. It's asking me to disregard the other person involved entirely. Regardless of what you did to me, I have to put it aside and take my own inventory. Where was I at fault? Where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? But he ripped me off. I understand that. But what did you do in return? And how long have I been holding on to this resentment? So... um, it got real difficult for me. First off, when I was writing about it, I was angry with my mom, my first inventory. She committed suicide. And I would never verbalize this because I felt like I was betraying. How could you speak poorly about your mom? But I was furious with her because I felt like she just cut out and left me, my dad, and my brothers. How could she do this to me? You knew, I was, in me thinking, you know I don't get along with my dad. You were the go-between. How could you do this? How could you commit suicide and call all this embarrassed? I was furious. I couldn't put that down until I got to the fourth step. And then it says, where are you at fault, Pete? I don't want to look at this. I didn't die. She did. I didn't commit suicide. She did. And it went like that. I had to pray again. And now came my fourth column. And then I had to write about uh, this gentleman who was touching me inappropriately for a while around ages 8 to 10. I remember writing about him, and the pen was going through the notepad. You know, it was still there. It was still, it was still marinating in the pen many, many years later, and God brought this to light. And let me say this. My experience has been this. There's going to be things on this footstep that are going to come to you. Why, why am I remembering this for? This is nothing but pain and heartache and sorrow. And I want to discard it, but it's coming from him. He knows the skeletons in the closet. He knows the toxic, the, the plaque on the soul. And I ask him in step three to get me free. So he's going to walk me into that dark room, up in the attic or down in the basement, turn on the lights and say, see all this stuff? I know you don't want to look at it. We're going to get rid of it. And he's going to do the heavy lifting. And I had to write about this man. 
oh, it was easy to write the second column. And I looked at the third column. That was easy. Then they asked me, where am I at fault to disregard what he did entirely? And that's when I closed the book. And I've shared this from a million podiums. I was so angry. I was crying at the same time. Just anger. And I, I, can't, I can't strike out at this guy. Because there was a lot of emotional baggage I carried with that into adolescence, <clears throat> into my young adulthood. <clears throat> like I was the only person this happened to and I had this, this horrible thing happen to me. Who do I talk to? And I called up my sponsor and I got his, uh, uh, his fiance on the phone and she was a double winner, AA and Al-Anon. And she talked me down from the ledge and then he got on the phone and he asked me a question. He said, he went like this, something along the lines, forget the fourth column for a minute, self response self-seeking and frightening. So let me ask you one question. How long have you been hating this guy? And I says, my whole life. He's just stopped hating and put that down. Let's move on. And when I got to the fifth step, fifth step, he shared with me almost similar things, very, very closely related uh, events that happened to him as well. And I didn't feel alone anymore because if there's a name for it, it's been done. Now, if he was married to the mechanics, he would have said, well, you've got to find out where yourself to sound so sneaky and frightened. I don't know if I would have got through it. It was that much of a roadblock and that painful. He just says, put down hate, move on. He was very much a mechanic, but he had flexibility. And he knew my heart was heavy. It was incredible what he did. <clears throat> I never thought I'd get through my first fourth step. And sometimes when I write inventories now of fourth step, it's, I know what, what I'm in for, but sometimes I wish I didn't have to do them anymore, and sometimes I'm excited to do them. I don't know what that's about, but I do them. It's the chopping wood and carrying wood and let God do the growing while I do the planting. I get to fear inventory, and oh my God, what's interesting over the years, I have more fears that I've come in touch with than resentments. The scary thing about fear, it drives resentments, and what drives fear is me, self-reliance. Self-reliance, current agnosticism, current unmanageability, fear. And it's a vicious cycle, and out of that, here comes a resentment, here comes a resentment, here comes a resentment. And I make decisions based out of fear. I make decisions coming out of a resentment, which means it's never right. I'm seeing the world through fear. I'm seeing the world through resentment. I'm seeing the world through one of those selves. I'm hearing through that. I'm speaking through that. I'm behaving through that. And I'm always off. I'm always wrong. And I keep saying, why are these things happening to me? Because I'm operating out of woundedness. I'm not just sharing woundedness like when we tell the story, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. I'm living in woundedness. I'm living in that place, never getting free, and I'm operating. I keep meeting the same type of people. I keep getting miserable in every job I have. I keep bumping into me wherever I go because I've never uncovered, discovered, and then discarded things that are blocking me from this power. Now, I'll be upfront with you. I don't have the power to do any of this. But God could, and what if he was sought? One of the great miracles of our God is we get four through nine and go, oh, my God, I'm free. Six months ago, three months ago, I was wrapped up tight in a major league baseball, and all I can do is praise God, thank God, talk about God, share about God, talk about AA, end this work, and I'm living proof that it works, and we get to bear witness, which our book talks about. When the new ones walk in the door, I was just like you, but I'm not there anymore. I'm not the guy on my first fourth step anymore. When I wrote it, I was him, just not using. I'm not that guy anymore. I take no credit for that. And so I wrote out fears and why I have them.
some of them were silly. I grew up in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and um, <clears throat> a few blocks from where I lived was a fire department. It was old cobblestone streets. And uh, every, almost every night, the fire truck would roll right underneath my window, and the whole house would shake. And the, fire, the sound of them scared me. And there was a very popular poster back in the day to, you know, the, it was in support of firemen and the great work they do. And um, this poster had this scruffy-looking fireman. You know that, the, the garb they wear? They got those, like, Terminator helmets on. And all these guys are big, strappy guys. They wear those big boots. I mean, they're intimidated, like Terminator guys showing up. And there's this scruffy-looking fireman. Looked like he was climbing down the ladder of a burning building with an infant in his arms. Now, it was obviously a fireman was saving this baby from a burning building. But as a little guy, these firemen were going to set my house on fire and take me from mom and dad. I was petrified of them. Now, when you're growing up in Brooklyn, hanging out on a street corner, and you're like 14 and 15, you think you're like Al Capone and trying to front like you're Al Capone in a big shot, and suddenly the firemen would show up to put out a car fire or a false alarm, and they would be walking around, and all my friends are watching, and I couldn't understand why I would back up a few steps and get really, really timid. What is going on? I'm not so much afraid of the police, because I wasn't really breaking the law at that age. So I wasn't so afraid of them, but the firemen petrified me until I write a fourth step, and that comes out of nowhere, and I realized exactly what that was going on. That's a silly example, but it was there. It was there. You put one fear together, not too bad. Put it together with another one, a little bit more. You put 30, 40, 50 fears together, regardless of how small they are, they suddenly become a huge boulder, and I'm paralyzed. I can't move, and they feed off each other. And you know what I do? When that noise gets so loud and I get wound up so tight, there's a default button that says double vodka, and I push it, and I drink. Because I'm alcoholic, that's what I do. And for me to think I can never go back to that because I'm here a few years, I'm closer to a drink than I think I am. Once a drunk, always a drunk. This great God gets me free. So I've got to shout his name from the rooftops as often as I can for the miracles, the great miracles. Our big book says the age of miracles is still with us. Our own recovery proves that. I'll lay off some here to Vegas. There's a few folks in here that, based on our track record, we're not supposed to be sitting here, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, dead in jail, another institution, you know, out there panhandling. But here we are. Hmm? Sometimes I'm looking for God's miracle, the seas to part, or for a politician to be honest. That would be a great miracle. Um, but all I have to do is look in the mirror, look to my left or right, and say, it's right in front of you. It's so simple, and I keep missing it. I keep looking, and it's right in front of me. Our own recovery proves that. Our book says that. And I'm almost out of time. I just want to share this with you. This is uh, this author is one of my heroes, and this is just, for me, incredibly important. <clears throat> and he says this. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. 
But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you would lead me by the right road, though I may not know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. That's all I got. Okay, let's thank Peter one more time. Okay, now it's time for Joey with the secretary's report. As they are going around, I've asked Nicole to come up and read the recovered statement. And the recovered statement, we read this um, to explain why many people in this group may identify as recovered rather than recovering and what exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. And Nicole will take it away. Thank you. Hi, I'm Nicole. I'm an alcoholic. Recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you, Nicole. All right. 1940-style big book sponsorship from the forward of the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% 50% got sobered once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses. And among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75-plus percent success rate. Awesome. All right, at this time... Um, I'm announcing if anyone out there needs a sponsor, please raise your hand. Sorry. Oh, would you mind standing up, please? Thank- What's your name? Haley? Awesome. Hi, Haley. Thank you. Awesome. Now, anyone, uh, all, any recovered folks out there? Raise your hand. Beautiful. Haley, you know, have your pick. Have fun. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Um, all right. So 
Yes, now we have announcements. Um, Intergroup, tremendous place where you buy a literature, um, medallions, responsible for creating the where and when, scheduling AA hotline, stop by and say hello if you, or go over there. Um, BCIC, sorry, next. Um, BCIC is responsible for bringing meetings where people like us can't get out to AA meetings, such as jails, detoxes, rehabs. They meet monthly to, to organize um, at the 12-step house. Is there anyone here part of BCIC? That's okay. Um, just go over to the 12-step house. It's a beautiful place. Um, next, please. We do have some um, volunteer opportunities to find out more. We do have flyers um, in the back, so please pick those up. Um, Next. 65th um, convention. Um, beautiful thing. Uh, again, we got flyers about that as well. All right. Um, Alcoholics of God, this is this meeting. Um, Peter is luckily joining us for a few more weeks, which we're super grateful for. Um, and Monday nights, um, upstairs, 7.15, come early for cookie allen's cookies they do not disappoint as well as um it's where the big book comes alive it's a beautiful time my home group as well and i think that's it all right um in the back with those flyers we do have cds mugs large large print big books little red books and big book dictionaries for sale see one of the home group members if you'd like to procure any um save your trip to intergroup uh, we do meet every Thursday, promptly at step 15. Uh, come early, 6.30, for some fellowship. We ask you to be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. Thank you all. See you next week. Thank you, Joey. Okay, we have tonight's session in all past speakers' podcast at alcoholicsandgod.org. Um, Please, again, come to our Monday night big book study. Um, We have a great time discussing um, the topics in the big book in a different way. Um, And again, if you would like to thank Peter M. and wish him a happy birthday, please line up down the center aisle. Have your wallets ready to give him a birthday present. That's a a joke. That's a joke. Um, But, I mean, do it if you want to. Okay. Um, Okay, so... Let's get godly and spiritual and close with the Lord's Prayer. Who woke us up this morning? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Body's heavy, soul is thirsty, body's aching. I am desperately in need of restoration. Yeah. And I am ready for you to 
smiling The whole world Smiles with you Yes, when you laughing
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go.
brand new way Show up and plug in my guitar And I play my songs And people sing along And stomp their feet and raise their arms And here in this moment that we share Nothing could come song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
dignity. Got one man that just won't say. 